Father, I, uh, I ask you two requests. Man, God, first service, some people are sleeping. It drives me crazy. And I just pray you'd help me to speak that will make sense and not bore people to tears for your, for your sake. And I pray for the listeners that, God, that they would see that these passages, though they're Old Testament, kind of dusty, they are so relevant. They are so uh, up-to-date that they're actually terrifying. Help us, God, to really pay attention. In your name we pray. Amen. And I mean it, man, first service, a couple people. I don't think I did a good job. Some were sleeping and I wanted to shake them, but I can't do that. I just can't do that. So, But I can second service, so be ready. Actually, um, we finished the book of Luke, which was, that was a lot of fun. So Jared and I, we pray through what do we want to go through next. And what we've chosen to go through is uh, partially because of our culture. Right now, I would say things are, they're crazy. Like, they're crazy. Seems like ever since Donald Trump, Trump won, people are losing their minds. Like, they're losing their, on both sides, they're losing their minds. It's like the sky is falling because one man was voted into office. In fact, uh, about two months ago, Michelle Obama, the former first lady, was sitting with Oprah, and this is what she actually said. She said, we are now feeling what not having hope feels like. Like, wow, what does it feel like to not have hope? Have you ever not had hope? Like, to me, not having hope is where I'm terrified to go to. There was a time in my life, I'll be honest with you, I was terrified to go to bed because I didn't want to wake up for the next day. So I would watch movies all night because I, I hated my job so much. That sort of felt like a lack of hope. But I think there's this, sometimes we are, in our culture, we, we hit crisis mode so quickly, so quickly. We see one thing on the news or a Facebook stream, and we're like, oh, no, the sky is falling. We're going to all die. To me, when it says, what does it mean to have no hope? That means that your tomorrow is do you're doomed. And I don't think we're at that point yet. But where we are going to pick up Scripture, we're going to start reading in 1 Samuel. We're going to start a series on the glory days of Israel. God and his three tremendous kings, Saul, David, Solomon. And the reason why is because really it comes out of a culture that's just perverse. No hope. I mean really bad. We're going to talk about it in a second. And out of that comes these men that are huge blessings to not just Israel, but to the world, specifically David. Those were glory days for Israel. And the reason we picked that is because the stories are kind of exciting, but also the culture is very, very relevant to ours. But to, before we go to 1 Samuel, I need to give you a biblical history and review. And this is where people fell asleep, so I'm not going to make it that boring this time. We're going to use the chair. This chair represents where we are at in the Bible and 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel's in the Old Testament. And I'm going to put this chair in four directions. So first direction. This represents looking to the past. What happened before? Real quickly, what happened before? Genesis 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Is that complicated? Jerry, are you with me? Okay, you're sleeping. God created the heavens and the earth. <laughs> With his word. 
Then Adam sinned. Sneaky snake came in, Adam sinned, and sin went to all of humanity. Along came this guy Abraham. He believed in God. God gave him a promise. Go to Genesis chapter 15. This is very important. Because we are, I would call 1 Samuel the white pages of the Bible. Not many people read it, so it's always white in your Bibles. So I need to get you there where you understand it. So if you go to Genesis 15, in verse 18, this guy Abe came along. Abram, later his name was changed to Abraham. But he believed in God. God called him out of all the nations. And he promised him not only would his people be as numerous as the sand of the sea, but watch this promise in verse 18. On that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land from the river Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Kadamites, Hittites, Perizzites, Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This land is called the promised land. It's called Canaan. If you go to the next slide, it's the land of Canaan. This is the promise that Abraham was given. I'll explain all those names in a second. So you have Abraham. He had a son named Isaac. He had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. And those are all the names of Jacob's sons. So remember, in Abraham, Abraham was given a promise. You'll get all this land from the Euphrates all the way over to the Mediterranean Sea, down sort of by Egypt. This is what God promised. You just read it. Is that clear? Does that make sense? Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, 12 sons. Those are all the names. They're called the tribes. The tribes of Israel. That's Israel. Those are the tribes. Clear, Fred? Move on. All right. They got it. So far, nobody's sleeping. Tom is close. We're going to go to part two. Part two, we turn the chair backwards. Over here, there was a famine in the land. One of the sons, Joseph, went to Egypt, which is a little more south, became one of the strongest, smartest men in the world. Did you ever watch the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston? Those are actual film reel from the real-time story. That was not. I used to believe it was. Anyhow, so what happened, there's a famine in the land. They go to Egypt. They stayed in Egypt for 400 years, and the Jews, which are the Israelites, equal, Israelites, Jews, 12 tribes, they became Pharaoh's slaves, so they were in slavery. So imagine this is prison. See, Sue, do you see that? Prison. Okay, so go to Exodus chapter 3. So they're in prison in Egypt. In Exodus 3, God gets this guy named Moses. Remember Charlton Heston put that name in there? Moses. Jared and I were taught, say Moses. He say, yeah, he says it perfect. <laughs> say, say it again. That's, anyhow, it's so good. He sounds like Yul Brenner. Anyhow, Exodus 3. I'm trying to keep you awake. See, keep you awake. I hate it when people fall asleep. Oh, Exodus 3. So you have verse 7. Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. My people are the 12 tribes. That's who my people are. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. They're getting whipped. 
I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to a place of the Canaanites. So he's saying, I'm going to deliver them out of Egypt and bring them back. That's a promise, and that's what he does in the Exodus. We actually celebrated the Passover two weeks ago. Remember the four cups? That was all about the Exodus. Now let's go to Joshua. He brings them out of Egypt, and then they come back to the land, and now Joshua is going to tell them to look forward. So I'm going to talk about the future of Israel. You had the past, you had... And this is all the way in Joshua. You got Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and Joshua. Joshua followed... Say Moses again, Jared. Nope, he... Do you know why Jared does that? He goes, I'm not your trained monkey, because he's really funny. Jared, walking close to the line. So I want you to go to the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 14. So they are back in the promised land. In Joshua chapter 14, in the city called Shiloh, which means to the one who should rule. Some people think it means peace. It's a city. Sort of right, Shiloh, you see Ephraim where it's green right there? And see Shiloh, that's a city where they're at. And Joshua talks to them there. And in chapter 14, verse uh, 1 and 2, listen to what he says. These are the inheritances that the people of Israel received in the land of Canaan, which Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of Israel gave them to inherit. Their inheritance was by lot, just as the Lord commanded by hand of Moses for nine and one-half tribes. So what he's saying is the land is going to be divided. It's going to be an inheritance forever. So each area, they cast lots. So Judah got this big portion down south. Dan got that little sliver of yellow there. Ephraim got that area. Manasseh got a lot. Gad got that Ammon. And so they cast it by lots, and that's their inheritance forever. In fact... If we go way fast forward, when we get to the millennial kingdom at the end of the world, that's going to be reestablished completely. But we're not going to talk about that now, so let's go back to the chair. Are you guys with me so far? Make sense? All right. Now, we are getting almost close to Samuel. But before that, Joshua says something in Joshua 24. I want you to listen really close because this is... This will set the tempo for the rest of the book. Joshua 24 and 14, 18. Okay. So Joshua sits down. He's about ready to die. He gathers people in Shiloh and he tells them this. Joshua 24, 14. Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. So he's going to die. He's going to say, hey, serve God. Put away the gods that your fathers served, be in the river and in Egypt, because they learned some idolatry when they went to Egypt. In verse 15, And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day who you'll serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. So Joshua stands up and he says, Now listen, basically I'm going to die. You, twelve tribes, you have to choose who you're going to serve. You're going to serve the gods of the foreign nations or God. Choose you this day. 
Look what they all say in verse 16. Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve our gods, for it's the Lord our God who brought... I mean, they're saying all these nice words. We're going to serve God, verse 18. He is our God. So that's what they declared. They declared, in a sense, God now is our king. He is going to be our leader. So they have no king. And really, they have no leadership but their own commitment to God. That's really where we are at in Samuel, because you're going to have this book called Judges. Judges and Samuel is sort of the same period. And we're going to talk about Judges in a minute. But let's go to 1 Samuel. From the time I just read here in Joshua, where they said, yes, we will serve the Lord, the pages you turn to get to 1 Samuel are 300 years you've just turned. You've just turned 300 years. So 1 Samuel chapter 1 is going to describe what happened to Israel over the 300-year period. When you turn those pages, that was the fastest 300 years that have ever gone by in your life. So, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 3, it's going to describe Israel at this time. And it is the worst of times, because listen to what it says in verse 1. Now the young man Samuel, and we'll talk about him in a second, ministering to the Lord under Eli, and here it is. The word of the Lord was rare in those days, and there was no frequent vision. So what he's saying, remember how they all said, we will serve the Lord, we'll do whatever he says. 300 years later, they didn't even hear his voice anymore. The word of the Lord was rare. If you go to Amos chapter 8, verse 11, you don't need to turn there. Amos says what is happening to them is a famine. Amos 8, 11 is really scary. It says there's a famine that's not of bread and water, but of hearing the word of God where people are going to stumble and they're going to search for it and they aren't going to hear it. And what was happening in Israel at that time when Samuel came to the scene is they no longer wanted to hear. They didn't care. And did you know if you don't care about God's voice, he'll hide it from you? And I call it the curse of the famine because really when the word of God is absent from your life, it's a curse. When you don't hear his voice anymore and there's no revelation as it said in 1 Samuel, it's a curse. It's bad, really bad. I'll show you how bad. If you go to, uh, to Judges, now we're going to go to Judges. Judges is a book that is from the time that when Joshua died to where we were at in Samuel. And it kind of tells you why the voice died. Gives you a reason why. And watch what this says. To me, it's scary. I call it the, the cultural death spiral. Judges chapter 2. Verse 11 to 17. And I want you to listen to this closely. Verse 11 says, The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. Remember what they told Joshua? We aren't going to serve idols, we'll serve God. Right away, they served the Baals. Those are idols. Baals are these little golden statues, usually a fertility god, sex god. Weird, there's some weird pictures of Baals. 
And that's who they serve. Why? Because verse 12, they abandoned the Lord. He was the one who brought them out of Egypt. Verse 13, it says, they abandoned the Lord and served Baals. And so verse 14, the anger of God was kindled and he gave them over to plunderers, nations around them. He said, you know what? My people are worthless. Go ahead and plunder them. Verse 15, whenever they marched out, meaning whenever they went to fight, the hand of the Lord was against his own people. Verse 16, so the Lord raised up judges. These are sometimes priests, sometimes rulers, sometimes just some weird guys and some really brilliant women. He raised up to lead Israel back out of bondage. Because listen to what it says in verse 16. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they didn't listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way which their fathers had walked. Verse 18, whenever the Lord was raised up a judge, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved the people from their enemies. For the Lord was moved to pity. Look at verse 19, Is said. Whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. So I call this the spiral of death. So they don't listen to God and they start sinning and then they get in trouble. They call out the God, he gives them a judge. Things are okay, after they're okay for a while, they go back, but they're worse than before. They cry out, they're okay for a while, and then they sin again. And every time they sin, they're worse and worse and worse. Plunders come in and steal. It's really what sin does to us. Do you know that... Um, what this, what this is really telling us is God's judgment isn't punishment. God's judgment is freedom to do what you want to do. When God really wants to punish you, he lets you have what you want. I often say it like this. If you really want to punish your two- and three-year-old kid, just lock them in the house for a week and leave. That's what he did to Israel. He just let them go. Every time they sin, all right. And then they get to the bottom, they cry out. He helps them out again. And then they don't want to listen to him. That's what's happening. Two things really are signs there's a leadership vacuum in a culture. Number one is there's, I'm sorry, there's a cultural death, death spirals. Number one, there's leadership problems. There's a leadership vacuum. If you go to 1 Samuel 2, I want to show you something real quick. 1 Samuel 2, in that same city of Shiloh, where Joshua had the people say, we will commit to God, the priesthood was set up. At the time of Samuel, there was this guy named Eli who had two sons. They were priests. Priests were the ones that would go before God on behalf of the people. There are modern-day pastors are like priests. They'd represent the people before God. But actually, did you know we believe in priesthood of believers? Which means if you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are a priest. You can go to God on your own. You don't need me. You don't need somebody to offer animal sacrifices. You are a priest in yourself. That's a sideline. But at that day, Eli was the priest, and he had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Terrible names for terrible men. Look at verse 12 of 1 Samuel 2 said, now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. These are priests that don't know the Lord. It's kind of weird. Do you think there's any pastors that serve at churches that don't know the Lord? 
I won't read what happened, but here's what they would do. People would come and make sacrifices. They'd take the meat from the sacrifice, they'd boil it, and they'd take a claw, and they'd put it in the boiling water, and whatever they pulled out would be their meat. That's how priests would be paid, and that's how they get their food. Well, Hophni and Phinehas didn't like that because they didn't like the fat that was boiled off. The fat brought all the flavor to the meat. So before the sacrifice, they said, I want this portion, this portion, this portion. Is Doug Kruger in here? Anyhow, he's, uh, for a wedding he's going to do, he's talking to me about this one portion of meat he's going to get, and it sounded, oh, so good. Wanted him to describe it for you. Anyhow, Hophni and Phinehas wanted that portion of meat. And what that did, it bypassed God's commandments or his instructions for the priests. And watch what happens in verse, verse uh, 17. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. They didn't listen to God. They sinned against him. But that wasn't the worst thing they did. Look at verse 22. Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So it's like you're going to church, you have ladies that are serving at church, and they're sleeping with them. These are bad guys. This is a bad time. When your culture goes downhill, the first thing that goes is your leadership. How do you think our leadership in our country is doing? Do you know I've heard a statistic that said if you ask kids in high school, different occupations they respect. The occupations they respect the least are congressmen, politicians, and pastors. It's kind of a sign there's a leadership vacuum. What's sad about a leadership vacuum is leadership is given to us by God, and when you can't trust leadership, often it falls back on, I can't trust God either. That's why a lot of kids don't have a lot of faith in God because they don't have much faith in leadership. But here's where it really gets bad. You want to watch how Judges ends up. Go to, back to Judges again. Very last chapter, last verse. And this is the bottom of the cultural spiral. Judges 21-25. So this is right before the book of Samuel. This is at the end of the 300 years. And this is how the culture is described. In those days, there's no king in Israel. Everyone, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. What that means is not only did they not listen to God, but they made up their own rules now, their own morality. This kind of describes our culture a little bit. Listen to these three articles I read this week. I read this yesterday. The office of the BLGTQ, I thought it used to be the LGT, but now it's the BLGTQ. Some have R, some have D, but it's the office of the BLGTQ, Student Life of Harvard, explains in the Gender Diversity Guide that gender is fluid and ever-changing, even as often as daily. And it writes, for many people, cis and trans, gender expression, identity, 
and self-understanding can change from day to day. So here's what they're saying. If you want to be a woman today, don't judge the person if they want to be a man tomorrow. And then back to a woman. And the next day back to, I don't know, questioning. And then back to a man. And it can change from day to day. day, to day. So if you go up to somebody who's a woman today, if he goes to the men's bathroom tomorrow, it's okay because you never know. It's fluid. Because everything's right in your own eye. I read this article this week. In 1940, teachers identified top problems with their students as talking out of turn. That's always terrible when kids talk out of turn. Chewing gum, making noise, running in a hall, cutting in line, dress code infractions, and littering, 1940s. When asked the same question in 1990, that's 27 years ago, teachers identified drug use, alcohol abuse, pregnancy, suicide, rape, robbery, and assault as the issues. Still, there's nothing worse than cutting in line. Do you know, it kind of kind of spiraled down a little bit, and I was 27, I think it's a little worse now. And if you think the church is immune to this personal decadence, decadence means when you just don't care. Pastor Ken sent me this article from the Gospel Coalition. They asked this question, how often, here's the question, how often, if ever, would you say the following activities would be cheating on a spouse or a partner? How often, if ever, would you say the following activities would be cheating on a spouse or partner? Here are some of the results. From evangelicals. Going to a strip club without your partner. 37% said that's wrong. So that means 63%, no big deal. Being emotionally involved with someone beside your partner, just emotionally involved, 67%, they didn't like that. That means 33 are okay with it. Romantically kissing someone other than your partner, 78% of Christians didn't like that. But you know what, that means 22% said, yeah, that's fine. Having a one-night stand with someone other than your partner, that's actually lower than kissing somebody. But isn't the question cheating on your partner, partner? And is not that the definition of it? But 77% said, yeah, it is. 23% said, I don't see that as a problem. Having regular sexual relations with someone other than your partner, that could be cheating. Well, 82% think so. That means 18% or that's not that bad. Shouldn't a Christian view each of these activities 100%, the article asks. I was talking to somebody who said, what about pornography? Wasn't, what do people think about that? And actually, I just listed these. There's a number of them, but pornography was 24% thought that was wrong. That means in the church, probably 76% have no problem with pornography as being a way to cheat on your spouse. Because everyone does that which is right in their own eyes. So when the famine is at its peak, Jeremiah 6 gives an explanation of the famine. And in Jeremiah 6, he says this, when it reaches its peak, they were not ashamed, they did not even know how to blush. That is when you know this famine for the word of God, when nobody cares, is really reached its peak. 
People no longer blush. There's no more sensitivity. People can now do some of the most disgusting things. Some people even who claim Christ, and they don't even blink an eye. Callousness is not a sign of maturity. Do you blush? Well, often God lets us sink to our lowest because often that's the only time we listen to him. In fact, you can look at it like this. When, why run to God when you have everything all figured out and life's going great? So often God will let us go to our own devices because he knows when we're at our bottom, that's when we finally listen and wake up. A good parent knows this. You can tell your kid you're going to help him tie his shoe 100 times. I can do it myself. I can, all right, all right. And then they bring it to you, Dad, help. That's what's happening in 1 Samuel. God is going to finally find some people who've had enough. In fact, Amos 3.7 calls a call to the faithful. Amos 3.7, which is the opposite of Amos 8.11, says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secrets to his servants. So he's saying his servants are those who he can give secrets to and they receive it talking to Jared about this first service, when we walked through the Luke book, we read the whole book of Luke on Good Friday. And it's, it's funny hearing us gospel read straight through, but there were two verses that really popped out, and they were the same one. And they said this, Jesus said this, do you want to know who my mother, my, my brother is, and my sister? It's the one who hears the word of God and does it. That's all he says. My mother, my brother, and my sister are the ones that hear the word of God and do it. That's, that's a faithful person. And so what we're going to see here is we're going to see God is now going to go after faithful people. And he's going to reach them in their desperation. And i got to tell you, this story, if you go to 1 Samuel chapter 1, it's one of the saddest stories. As we go through... As we go through this series, we're going to do it from now through summer. I'm going to ask you to read ahead, because if I read all four, four chapters, it would be long, and you'd be falling asleep. And that makes me crazy! Anyhow, read this. When you get home, read the first four chapters. Read Hannah's story, but let me tell you Hannah's story real quickly. Hannah was married to this man named Elkanah. Elkanah had two wives. Peneah was the first wife. And Hannah was the second wife. Panea could have kids. Hannah could not. Actually, to me, one of the saddest books, verses in the Bible, I guarantee you for women, it's a terrifying verse for some women. It's verse 6 of 1 Samuel 1. It says, but to Hannah he gave a double portion, meaning Elkanah loved Hannah so much more than Paniah, gave her a double portion of sacrifices to go to the altar because he loved her. But also the Lord closed her womb. That's verse 5. Meaning, she couldn't have children. And she was desperate. I'll be honest with you. 
I know a lot of ladies that can't have children, and it's one of the worst things ever. Some won't come to Mother's Day. I remember one lady who heard about a girl who could easily have babies even before she's married, and it's like, oh, I've done it right. Why can't I? This is terrible for some people. Why does God allow people to have such difficulties in their life? I don't know. All of us suffer in our own way. We all do. But what you're going to see with Hannah in here, the faithful heart doesn't turn bitter. It turns towards God to trust Him. And some of you, honestly, have been asked to carry some tremendous burdens. But what you're going to see is God often, and this sounds so weird, God often chooses people who He knows He can trust with suffering. I know that doesn't sound right. But God chooses people he knows he can trust with suffering. Paul says, I want to know him. The power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. Because some people suffer so well that God gets such enormous glory. Here's Hannah. She couldn't have a baby. She goes to the priest. She says, if God hears my prayer, I will dedicate my first child to him. She used her desperation as a way to reach out and call out to God. Look at verse 17. Then Eli answered, go in peace. Because she's so, it says in verse 16, full of anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you've made. And then she trusted. This is amazing. Let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, meaning he slept with Hannah. The Lord remembered her prayer. And in due time, Hannah conceived. And she bore a son. She called his name Samuel. Some of you have been asked by God to suffer to be a blessing for others. Hannah was such a blessing that Samuel was the man that ushered in a new era, a new epic for Israel. She's asked to do some incredible things for the sake of God's glory, and she acted in trust. Next thing she did is she dedicated herself and her child to God. In verse 21, the man Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice, but Hannah did not go, for she said to her husband, as soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. So she brought her son that she dedicated to God to stay with Eli as a priest forever. She fulfilled her vow. God knew when he's calling to a faithful person, that person will give their life in dedication and follow through with it. When you hear his word, do you dedicate your life to it? Or do you just... That's a nice... That's a nice Bible verse. I can put that on a Harlequin card and give it to my wife. Or do you do it? People who are faithful personally dedicate their lives. I mean really dedicate. Verse 28, verse 27, For this child I prayed, the Lord has granted me a petition that I made to him, therefore I've lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. So here's Hannah, her faithfulness to God 
gave birth to this boy Samuel, who became an amazing blessing to Israel. Which brings us really to the third part of the call of the faithful. Not only is desperation lead to personal dedication, but desperation is open to God's voice, and Samuel really was. Look at chapter 3. This is amazing. And I'll read through this story. Are you guys with me so far? Boring. Shaley, how are you doing over there? Good? All right. Good. Good. Steve back there, good? All right. He's one that usually sleeps. He's awake. That's good. I'm kidding, Steve. I'm so here is the story of Samuel, the guy who's dedicated. This is awesome. Because remember, for 300 years, no voice, no revelation. Starting in verse 2. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had yet, not yet gone out, meaning outside the tent of the meeting there was a lamp that was lit, which meant that people would be able to bring sacrifices. It didn't yet go out. Then the Lord called to Samuel and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli. Here I am, you called me. But he said, I didn't call you, go lie down. So he went and lay down. Verse 6, the Lord called again, Samuel. Samuel arose, went to Eli, said, Here I am, you called me. But he said, I didn't call you, my son. Lie down. Now Samuel did not, this verse is cool. Now Samuel did not yet know the Lord, and the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Meaning, revelation, knowledge, comes from revelation. You want to know God, you need to know his word. Verse 8. The Lord called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and he went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. And Eli, ah, perceived that it was the Lord calling young man. Therefore Eli said, Go lie down. If he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Lord, your servant here. So Samuel lied down once again. And the Lord came and stood. How does an invisible God come and stand? Hmm. Is that the pre-incarnate Christ visiting? Jesus before he came to earth and his priest. That's for you to find out. Verse 10, and the Lord came and stood, calling it as, as at other times. Samuel, Samuel, and Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. And the Lord said to Samuel, Behold, I'm about to do a thing in Israel, which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. And so he gives them a prophecy about Eli and his rotten sons and how they're all going to die in the same day. But let's jump to verse 19. Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. God now had the person in place. He wanted to help usher in the kingdom because this man listened. He listened to the voice of God and he responded. When God is ready to change your world, he sends his word. He always begins by speaking his word. And when he speaks his word, I love what 1 Samuel 2.30 says. Read this verse to me. This is sort of the theme of Samuel and the theme of kings and the theme of those who are faithful. 1 Samuel 2.30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me. But now the Lord declares, 
And here it is. Far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise me, I shall despise me, shall be lightly esteemed. God is saying, here it is. Those who honor me, I will honor. And those who could care less about me and my word, I'm going to lightly esteem you. Meaning, you can do whatever you want. But I'll tell you what, if you listen to me, I'll honor you. What's very interesting in Isaiah chapter 66, 2b, it says, here's the one I highly esteem. You want to know the person I highly esteem? person who walks with me humbly and trembles at my word. Just the opposite of this. And so Samuel basically listened to God and he brought on a new era. Look at this new era. It's going to be back in Shiloh. Shiloh is where they set up a permanent tabernacle. This is where God visits the people. Inside that tent is where they make offerings of the lamb. Actually, they kill the lamb outside. See that square thing that's called the brazen altar? That's where heat comes out. And they have like a barbe- It's a barbecue pit, basically. Then that bird bath right there in the middle, that's actually where they wash their hands before they go make the offering inside to the Lord. And this is where Samuel hears from God. Shiloh now got up here. He was quiet. 300 years before that. I love again what he says in 1 Samuel 3, 19-21. Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fall to the ground, meaning that whatever Samuel prayed, God would answer. For the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. Our world might be falling apart. It is strange days, absolutely. But God has not left us. We have his word, we have his spirit. He's not left us. And I believe those who honor him, he will honor. I believe that with all my heart. If life doesn't make sense, it feels like you ran out of hope. Some of you, you know, you're waiting for prayer for years and years. What this says, if you honor God and stay with him, He will honor you. I don't know how. I don't know when, but he will. You can bank on that. You can trust him. It's funny how because of Hannah and Samuel's faithfulness, God's presence came. And when it comes, things change. It's going to be a whole new era. David will be just, wait till David gets to the scene. He's unbelievable. It's, I feel something's happening, too, in our church, to be honest with you. Beginning in 2016, the leadership, starting with the pastors through the elders and deacons and other people in the church, really felt we needed to have a concerted effort of prayer. So we started these prayer gatherings. Vicki Skydom of Praise in the mornings at our church. Home fellowship groups have really started kicking in more in prayer. Our pastors have been praying. And I just sense that God has been working, working more. I would say the baptisms last week were amazing. If you didn't watch the first service baptisms, unbelievable. You could say the numbers have grown. Numbers are, numbers are important, but that, not that big a thing, deal. To me, it's lives changing. And what you're seeing, I think there's an assumption. When God works, everybody's going to be nice and happy. Things are going to be very nice. I believe it's going to be almost the opposite. When God works, he's like a plow. 
And the only word I can think of, and I've said this before, is more starts happening. Those people who fall to the right of the plow want him even more than they did before. But those who fall to the left, those who didn't really care, when he starts working, they aren't going to just not care. They're going to want to keep, they are getting mad at him. It's almost better to have somebody mad at God than just, God's a nice God. Actually, Martin Luther said, when I get, can get somebody angry at God, actually they're closer to God than they've ever been before because they get it. Somebody's angry at God, they understand finally what he's saying. Some people think God is like a nice mist that just falls on us and we all feel good. No, God's a plow. And it says more on it. And so the question for you is, it said, just like Samuel, he started revealing himself and Israel started changing. How about you? Has he revealed himself to you? Or, or is this like a famine to you? Like when you read it, dust, dust flies off this book. Like, huh, it's dusty. I don't, it's old. Or is it your life? Man, I get it. I'll be honest with you, like when you look at the news and stuff, it's getting bad. But Jesus gave this promise. In this world there will be trouble, tribulation, there will be trials, but fear not. Fear not, I have overcome the world. And those who honor me, I will honor. 